In hypothesis testing, a p-value can indicate how statistically significant a particular set of findings are, but there's some concern that researchers have become overly reliant on the measure, leading to a lack of nuance in some discussions of data, or the discarding of interesting work simply because the p-value isn't on the right side of 0 0.05. The debate over p-values is the focus of a special issue of the American Statistician, and this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me in the studio are regular panelists, John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell, former and founding Chair of Media, Journalism, and Film. Our guest today is Nicole Lazar. Lazar is a professor of statistics at the University of Georgia. She also recently edited with Ron Wasserstein and Alan Sherb, a special issue of the American Statistician, which included 43 wide-ranging articles focused on p-values, contextualizing their history, their use, as well as the debate around their utility and usefulness. Nicole, thank you so much for being here today. Before we get started with the argument of the special issue and some of the articles in it, uh, could we talk a bit about sort of um, why p-values have become an issue? Sure. So there's a, a number of reasons, I think. Um, partly it has to do with the fact that um, scientists and researchers have become so reliant on this measure, and journals have sort of followed, encouraged that, I guess, um, by putting in such an emphasis on this 0.05 threshold, which is really just an arbitrary threshold, but it's taken to mean a whole lot more than it really does. P-values are also hard to understand and get misinterpreted a lot. And so this, together with some of the issues surrounding um, perceived reproducibility and other crises in science, has just created what we call a perfect storm of circumstances around this issue. Well, this is great. I'm, I'm going to ask you to, to rewind just a bit, a little bit, because I, I know my dad's going to be listening to this at some point. <laughs> and 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 you know, so there there are some things that we've t that that were in Rosemary's introduction and in your response that I that I'd love to get you to to give a simple description more broadly. You know, like what is a hypothesis test? What what kinds of what what's being evaluated in hypothesis tests? And how how are p values used to to choose between those hypotheses? Okay, so the standard way that we teach our intro courses, intro statistics courses, and actually even more advanced courses as well, is that we have a set of two competing hypotheses. One is called the null hypothesis, and that's the one that we sort of hope is not true. Mm -hmm. And the other is the alternative hypothesis, which is the one that maybe we would like to be true. And a lot of the statistical procedures that we teach, for instance, in our classes are built on basically testing these two hypotheses one against the other. Um, and the hope is that we could uh, reject, as it's called, the null hypothesis in favor of the alternative hypothesis. And the p-value is a way of trying to get to that decision, whether we should reject the null hypothesis or not. So as the journalism teacher here, uh, there's two of us actually, uh, um, I love the way you use metaphors. And uh, for me, not being a statistician, when statisticians use metaphors to explain things, I, I, uh, I am appreciative. <laughs> so you used a, 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 a timber and construction metaphor at the beginning of this article in which I think you equate p-values with rotting timber. 
and that there needs to be kind of a new foundation. You also yes. say in the article, and I love this line too, the tool has become the tyrant. Oh, I like that too. Yeah, so, that, this, this was Ron. Ron is <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I've read some of your other stuff, and, and it's uh, it's got some metaphors in it too. So talk about what those mean. So the tool has become a tyrant. Let's start there. Okay, so the tool has become a tyrant. Um, this goes back to what I was saying a couple minutes ago about that 0.05 threshold being the magic threshold. So, for instance, it's hard to get results published in journals, in good journals, if you have a p-value that's greater than 0.05, even if it's just a little bit greater than 0.05, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So in that, so in that regard, the tool has become the tyrant because it's become a barrier for to publication, which it never sh was meant to be and never should be. Um, it also means then that people, whether consciously or not, will try to get to that magic threshold of 0.05 so that they can publish their results. Um, which is backwards, I think. You know, we should let the results speak for themselves and not be so compelled to get to some arbitrary cutoff point just to even get our publications out there. So you have you have just one don't in this pay, in this in your editorial that leads into this this yeah this special issue, and I, I find mm -hmm. that that's that's kind of an interesting one that says. Don't say statistically significant is yeah. Uh, yeah so that's you're you're kind of banning a phrase or proposing that. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if I'd say banning. <laughs> Although well, but, some people have certainly taken it that way. Okay, so so tell us, you know, what this is. This is almost a statement that's made as giving um, almost a blessing to to a research result in the past. That, yes. like you said, that that somehow having this this level that somehow one in twenty is sufficiently special to merit uh, publication and recognition, but, right. but less than one in 20 in terms of the unusualness of a result would, would be not so great. You know, so, so what do you, why, why do you say that this, you and the editorial are su suggesting this one particular don't? Well, first of all, in the, in the original ASA statement from three years ago, we had a lot of don'ts. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we thought that, Saying don't, don't, don't doesn't really help to move the conversation forward because ultimately people are going to say, well, if we can't do all these things that we're used to doing, what should we do instead? So that's why in the editorial, we focused on the do's. The particular don't around statistics, not saying statistical significance comes down to, I think again, this misinterpretation because the word significance has a meaning in everyday life as well. Yeah. And so, you know, you tend to think if something is statistically significant, then that means that it's really important or interesting, but that's not necessarily true. There are statistically significant results that are not that interesting, and there are not, quote-unquote, statistically significant results that could be interesting as well. And so we, there's this, this, this confusion that's significant with important and meaningful, and that's what we're trying to move people away from. The article quoted an 1885 uh, quote from uh, around the about the original meaning of this, which was to indicate when a result warrants further scrutiny, mm -hmm. and I thought that's very different. Yeah. Yes, today. Yeah. And uh, could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So I think this gets back to the tool becoming the tyrant idea. I mean, originally this was not what the any of these thresholds or cutoffs were proposed for it was just to see should we should we look further or is mm -hmm. there anything here that might be potentially interesting 
Um, Fisher also, in some of his work on this, said, you know, this, you should never make a conclusion based on just one study. You should mm -hmm. follow up and see what happens in those studies as well and whether the interesting results persist. So, um, and so one in 20, you know, we could argue about whether that in itself is even all that surprising. I think you also need to think about the context that people were working in in those days. The sets were a lot smaller. Studies were a lot more of the designed experiment and sampling, whereas today we're living in a completely different landscape from where these tools were first developed. And that to shift our practice as well, so far it has. Very good. How has it become a tyrant? How, how did we find ourselves in this a space where it's gone from a, an indicator that maybe you should explore further to being this thing where um, I could imagine some, you know, peer reviewers seeing a study with a point, uh, a p-value slightly above 0.05 and rejecting a study outright. How did we get yeah. to this sort of tyranny? Gosh, I wish I knew. Um, maybe you should interview Steve Stigler for the history of this, because um, this is really like a historical and sociological question, and, mm -hmm. I, and I'm not really sure how we got to this point. I think it's, I mean, my my best take on it is that there's been a sort of interlocking system of incentives mm. um, coming from the journals, coming mm. from the way that we teach, coming from the way that people get hired and promoted and get grants. And I mean, it's all kind of worked together in a, I think, not so great way. Um, but I don't know like how we got from, well, maybe a little bit I do know how we got from that. So, you know, now we're, so, we're used to having computers that can calculate all of our statistics for us. Mm -hmm. But in the past, the things were done by hand. And so they needed to, you know, if you go back and look in like, Biometrica and all of these old journals, they published tables of, mm -hmm. of statistical distributions, but you had to then pick some thresholds for cutoffs that you were going to look at. Mm -hmm. And so 0.05 was one of them, 0.1 was one of them, 0.01 was one of them, but there are very few values that they actually computed. And so those became sort of by default the values that we look at because that's all we had access to. Yeah, I, I wonder also if, if there's just sort of such a, a, a attractive simplicity in having mm -hmm. this this dichotomous call. I mean, yes. I, I mean, we see a lot of times where where people are reporting even even summaries of of distributions in single numbers. It, mm -hmm. you know, you'll show the average of this group versus the average of that group without without any kind of of comment on the variability of the responses that are associated with those averages. I, I think it's part of the simplicity of message and simplicity of application. Oh, absolutely. But the problem is in this case that life, I mean, life is not simple and data are not simple. No. Data analysis is not simple. That gets to the question of uncertainty, right? That, yeah. That a lot of, a lot of us want some, to be certain about these yeah. things. And I know yeah. from working with John for, many years that uncertainty is always sort of at the heart of this. And I think that's what you're talking about a lot is the, mm -hmm. is the subject of uncertainty. Can you talk a little bit about that, what that term means to, to you? Yeah. So to me, I mean, you know, the, the, the world is an uncertain place. And if I take the, the analogy I've been trying to use, well, it's not really an analogy, but the, I guess the thought experiment that I've been trying to use is if I collect a sample today and I do some calculation on it, that's going to give me one value. And if I collect a different sample from the same population on another day, it's going to give me a different value if I do the same analysis and so on. So I could do this lots of times. The p-value itself is not a fixed number. So the p-value that I get out from the analyses that I do on these different samples will also be different. 
and some of them will be greater than 0.05 and some of them will be less than 0.05, but I'm studying the same phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And so that whole aspect of uncertainty gets lost. Um, the repeated sample aspect of it. Yes. And yeah, but, but you know, I mean, we do want certainty. I've been trying to introduce some of these ideas in my teaching and my mm -hmm. students are, their reaction is, well, if we can't, you know, use the 0.05 threshold to make our decisions, what are we supposed to do? Right. <laughs> so they're scared of, of tackling that uncertainty mm -hmm. for long. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today our guest is Nicole Lazar, who co-edited a special issue of the American Statistician exploring the issue of p-values. Nicole, there are 43 articles in this special issue of the journal. I was wondering if you could give us sort of a broad overview of kind of the, the various arguments and maybe the, the main themes running throughout these, these articles as they appeared in the issue. Sure, um, I can try anyway. Uh, so we wanted the issue to be broadly accessible, um, not just meant for statisticians. Statisticians talking to statisticians about this issue is not going to change anything. So we really did try to have a range of papers that would be of interest to scientists and researchers in different fields, as well as to a statistical audience. So there are papers that argue a variety of perspectives. So there are papers, some just say, well, we should continue to use p-values and thresholds, but just change our thresholds. There are some that propose alternative measures to p-values that maybe could also be thresholded, but not necessarily. Uh, there are papers about education. How do we get mm -hmm. from, how do we change the way that we teach our students so that mm -hmm. this cycle gets broken? There are papers about how do we change the editorial process so that the cycle can get broken at the journal level? And then our papers that we hope will be of interest to practitioners in different fields, um, ranging from medical to social sciences. So pretty much, I we were hoping to have something for everyone that would that's interested in this question. So I do, I do think you did you succeeded in that regard, and I I, I like that you had you, you tried to to capture your your dues yeah. in a simple way. So you you've got your uh, your atom. Uh, yes. Prompt. So accept uncertainty, be thoughtful, open, and modest. So yes. could you could you just say a sentence or two about each of those components of the, that are embedded in your recommendation? Sure. So I think we've talked about uncertainty already um, and why that's important to recognize and acknowledge and not be afraid of it because it's part of it's part of science and it's part of the world. Um, be thoughtful. You know, I think there using a fixed threshold is sort of the opposite of being thoughtful. So think about, think about what's interesting. Think about what's important. Think about how you use your data. Um, be open starts to talk about also open science and, and some of the issues there that, that are coming at the reproducibility crisis from a different angle. Be open about what you've done, share it, share your data, share your analyses, share your code be open to criticisms as well, I would say, of, of your of your methods and your techniques. And being modest, um, you know, don't put too much on any single result. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, think about, again, sort of the bigger picture and how things tie together. So will there be a lot of pushback on this? Uh, and do you have any, uh, do you have any data on this yet? <laughs> not, not so far. Uh -huh. um, there's been, I mean, I've, I, I've heard of not too much pushback. I think most people are at least willing to have the conversation. 
even if they don't, I mean, not everybody agrees, obviously, with everything in the editorial or in the special issue, because the people, the papers in the special issue don't even agree with themselves. Mm -hmm. That's great. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Right? I mean, that's exactly what should be happening. And, you know, we were very deliberate to say there's no one answer. There's no one size fits all. In fact, we want to move away from the one size fits all. Mm -hmm. So, I again, I haven't had... I personally have not received any emails saying, you know, oh, this is terrible. I've, I've heard some, I've heard some other through the through the through the back alleys, sort of saying this might be bad ultimately for for science and statistics. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm not sure. My dad asked if I'm being savaged on Twitter, but I told him. Can't imagine you will be. I mean, the first the first statement that ASA did was well received and, mm -hmm. and well yes. promoted. So I expect that this is going to, to get the same kind of attention. And, mm -hmm. and again, you know, we're not trying to lay down a law for anybody. No. We're just trying to get people talking, which I think we've succeeded in doing. I think so too. I, you know, you, you mentioned the idea of reproducibility. I, I, I was yeah. hoping that why don't you talk a little bit more about that? How how that that reproducible results is, is a concern now, and how does this P less than 05 uh, idea contribute to this problem? Sure. So, the, you know, this is obviously an area that's still developing because people have different ideas about what is meant by a study being reproducible. Mm -hmm. uh, sort of a crude uh, in meaning of it might be, well, if the first study had a P less than 0.05, then the second study should have a P less than 0.05 as well, but that's not realistic for the reasons that we've already talked about. Um, so it comes in, I think, in a couple of ways. Again, by that, because we have the uh, arbitrary threshold, you know, Andrew Gelman has a really nice expression that he that he uses in this context from time to time, which is like, where the studies are chasing noise. And so there may not even be much to find there, but you'll analyze your data and torture your data set until they reveal the magic 0.05. Well, if you've done that, the next study that comes along is not going to be able to mm -hmm. reproduce that result. So that's one way that p-values have come into the problem. The other way, I think, is sort of the flip side of it, is that all those studies that don't appear in the literature because they didn't meet the threshold of 0.05 or whatever threshold the journal uses, and then those could be studies that show that the, you know, that the effect is not really there, the result is not really there, or is more elusive than might be indicated by the, by the papers that make it into the journals. And so that also contributes from, from the other side our ability to reproduce and, and replicate results because we just don't have the whole picture. Nicole, um, to sort of a sidetrack really quickly, I took part in a science reporting workshop years ago when I was still a journalist and uh, one of the people who were leading the workshop, one, one of the guest speakers, um, sort of pointed to the 0.05 as being sort of a way for journalists who are trying to decide whether to cover a study or not, of being sort of a, a quick shorthand to be able to evaluate whether a study is worth sort of digging into more whether you should pitch it when it comes through your inbox. Whether it is statistically significant. Right, yes, and worth, yes, for, for news. Um, so I'm wondering, for, for an audience that's not as, you know, quantitatively literate, who, you know, is reading this scholarship and, and is, is, is sort of sifting through scientific data, what advice would you give to them for, if they're not going to look at a p-value, what else could they look for in a study to sort of gauge whether it's something worth invest, investing more time in? Well, that, that's a hard question. Um, and I think that's one of the things that's still in flux that will need to have new, new standards and new ideas. But some, some initial thoughts that I have 
would be that I would encourage a person like that to look at how the study was done. Um, you know, whether, whether it looks like it was done in a reasonable way, I would like to see the effect sizes and we can talk about that more if we need to effect sizes reported as well as measures of uncertainty for those effect sizes, as well as the p-value. I mean, a small p-value might still mean something. A large p-value might mm -hmm. still mean something. Give us the information and let us think about it. Yeah, so journalists that. might have to also retrain the way they think. Mm -hmm. I, you know, what one one takeaway for me as I as I look at this and think about about the ideas here is that. It's, it's pushing things a little bit before the data is collected. It's the idea of the, the well-designed study that it's, it's it, there's been good, good thought about what's going to be evaluated, what are the primary hypotheses that you want to test about a system, you know, and make sure you have enough data to evaluate it critically, you know, that then you're not relying on just this, this magic dichotomous call. You're doing right, something. The, the work right. up front is what matters. So, so now you're, you're asking people to, to have a, um, a better sense of how to critically evaluate how data are collected and how studies are designed. And that, that's, a, yeah. that's a harder question. It is a harder question, um, no doubt about it. But if we want, you know, if we, well, again, life is hard. And, <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think, you know, we can, it's not impossible, right? I mean, I, and again, I don't want to bring too much personal stuff in, but, you know, I was having this conversation with my soon to be 13 year old the other day. And I said to him, you know, you, you should be skeptical when you hear something, you should think about, well, how did that happen? And where, why did this happen? And why was it like this? And how were the data collected? And how was the analysis done? And I mean, he got it, mm -hmm. you know? And so I think if we, if we build that in, maybe, you know, this is, so this is not something that's going to change overnight. I mean, it's mm -hmm. going to take a lot of effort, but we didn't get here either overnight. I mean, it took us 70 or 80 years for people to feel comfortable comfortable with, oh, P less than 0.05, and still we don't really understand what it means a lot of times. It seems like one of the challenges here is to change the way journals accept papers, which yeah. seems like a tough, because that's so important to how people get promoted, how they're recognized mm -hmm. in the field. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So do you have any, and I didn't, I didn't read all of the articles. <laughs> so yeah. do you have any ideas on how do you change that culture? So some of the ideas that I've seen bandied about have to do with openness again. So there are, there are more and more um, open publication models. So um, I'm thinking of things like um, registered, pre-registered reports as an example. Mm -hmm. So you can put your whole study design. This is what we're planning to do. This is how we're going to collect the data. These is this is how these are our hypotheses. These this is how we're going to analyze them. You put it all out there first. The paper gets accepted on the strength of the science, and mm -hmm. the results that you get in the end don't matter. You know whether it was whether you had small p values or large p values, as long as you followed your pre-registered protocol. So that's one way. Mm -hmm. um, these other other things are like open peer review platforms that are starting to pop up. So people who put their papers out there. And I'm not talking about archive because that doesn't have the the pre-publication peer review sure. aspect to it. I'm thinking about other other platforms that are starting to pop up here and there. So you put your paper out there, and then people readers can comment on it, give you suggestions. Um, and then you can either submit to a journal, a regular quote-unquote journal if you want to after that, or you can just leave it up there, um, published on, the, on a site like this. 
So I think people, you know, folks are coming up with very creative um, ideas mm -hmm. about how to change the publishing model. Mm -hmm. Of course, we still have all the big society journals and those which are going to be slower to change. Um, yeah. They may or they may not. It's unclear. Uh, but some journals are starting to make moves in that direction. Um, you know, the, obviously there was the famous or infamous social psychology journal that banned hypothesis testing mm -hmm. a few years ago, and that was part of this whole conversation as well. Mm -hmm. So I, my, my quick last question is, how, how has being part of this conversation and this, this editorial review process and looking at all these papers, how has this changed your practice? Or how you think? How do you think about the discipline, or how do you think about training others in this discipline? Yeah, so it's definitely forced me to embrace the uncertainty, <laughs> <laughs> because you know, I mean, and all of these things that you've asked about. I mean, I've been struggling with them as well. I don't know. I've been trying to change some of my teaching habits, but it's hard because the students then become much more freaked out than they usually are about taking a stats class. <laughs> and, this is, and this is also stats yeah. majors and minors, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm telling them to abandon this crutch that they've been taught yes. and, and it's hard. Um, it's made me think a lot more about how I present results in class um, and how I analyze them and the model that I try to set for my students in that regard. But I do, it's kind of like, I'm not really sure now what to do either in some, in some respects. And I think that's okay because I want to try and figure out how to do things. So maybe more emphasis on modeling everything together rather than relying on hypothesis tests so much and, and strict cutoffs, which is sort of ironic because some of my other work has focused on the multiple testing problem, which, you know, is hitting this, Flat, flat on, and so I'm kind of like now saying, well, all of that stuff maybe we don't want to be doing anymore anyway. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, but Nicole, <laughs> that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you can find podcasts if you'd like to share your thoughts. On the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net. Be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.